Our text today will be Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word and for the mystery of the kingdom of God and for the wonderful things that you have done and you continue to do. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would give us understanding of your word today and that you would give us a heart like Mary's heart uh, that would say, um, do unto me according to your will, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to start out with a couple of metaphors you've heard before. I couldn't decide um, on which metaphor to use, so I said I'm going to use all three. Um, So the, the old fish, older fish, uh, swims up to these two younger fish <clears throat> and says, how's the water? And the one younger fish looks at the other younger fish and says, what's water? <clears throat> um, you've heard me use that before, I think. Um, but it's easy for us to miss the water that we're swimming in. We, we, we don't understand how, when we get up in the morning, uh, we are immediately immersed into things uh, that we may not be paying enough attention to. So the Word of God calls us to much more than fishing from the cesspools of corrupted culture. We are called to purify the water. Um, And uh, large large sections of the church are really kind of just focused on pulling people out of the cesspools of the world um, and ignoring the call of the kingdom of God to actually purify the water. We need to be paying attention to the water that we're living in. You know, I, I, I've used that analogy before about the swimming pool. 
Um, I, I didn't plan on using that one, but um, we're all swimming in the same swimming pool. And so when someone is using foul language or, you know, just kind of really mucking things up, um, you know, you might remind them of that. <laughs> we are swimming in the same pool here. So you might think it's your right to do whatever you want to do, but you can't do that over in the corner. <laughs> what you're doing there is polluting the water. <laughs> um, anyway, so another analogy, computers. Um, booting up operating systems, that kind of thing. There's, I told you, I have metaphors. I couldn't decide on which one to, to use. So. <clears throat> um, the computers, they, they boot up and they have programming, right? The programming automatically loads um, and uh, it's just there. Uh, so you start you start using your computer and you don't really think about what's there. Um, and then my last analogy, these all come together in just a minute. Acting, <clears throat> um, background, stage, our character, our lines, the whole story. Um, so we're often not mindful of the story that we're supposed to be in. We're kind of uh, distracted by our, our selfish interests or we just, we're just not connected with what's going on. <clears throat> So the moment we wake up in the morning, okay, I'm going to try and pull all these together. The moment we wake up in the morning, like turning on a computer, all the default programming loads up, <clears throat> no matter who you are, right? whether you're atheist or devout Christian or Muslim or Hindu, whatever, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, your default pro pro programming loads up. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so we need to keep in mind what kind of programming we have. And, and, and pay attention to it, just like we would pay attention to the water um, uh, and, and the background and the stage and all that. So, um, so one of the reasons we are called to weekly assembly for covenant renewal is to reform and reshape that default programming to help us change the water, to, to get us to think about the water that we're in. Um, reform, reshape the default programming, um, teaching and reminding us of the story we are in and giving us our stage directions, okay? So I'm trying to pull all these little things together to, to say this kind of thing that <clears throat> we come together for worship to change the water, so to speak, or to, to be mindful of the water, to, to learn how to change the water <clears throat> um, and to pay attention to the programming, that's what's going on inside of us, and to understand our story to understand where we're going and why, what we're doing. Um, <clears throat> so the structure of Israel's year, I'm getting to the church year and liturgy. So talked about how covenant renewal is designed, covenant renewal worship is designed with that in mind to um, make us more mindful of our story. <clears throat> so is the church year. Um, the structure of Israel's year, that is the church year, is like the pattern for covenant renewal, beginning as it does for us with the celebration of the birth of Christ. Remember, this is the beginning of the church year. He established a kingdom that will never end, as the scriptures tell us. Kingdom of God, this new covenant heaven and earth, is the stage and the context for our daily lives. Okay, it is, It's the water in which we live. <clears throat> Christmas is a kind of call to worship and a commissioning, a beginning and an end. Do you see how I'm connecting the church year to our liturgy? We have a call to worship. We, well, it's the C's, right? So call to worship, confession, consecration, communion, commissioning, all those C's. Um, 
Christmas is, is this kind of call to worship at the beginning, and it's also the commissioning at the end. Okay, so it's, it's kind of got the bookends. Christmas is really beginning and end. <clears throat> the rest of the year consists of confession, consecration, and communion. Okay, so if you take a look at Easter, for example, you know, and how that, how that works, um, the rest of the church year is filled with the other three C's, confession, consecration, and communion. Um, but Christmas is sort of the call to worship and the commissioning. I hope we're able to recapture this sense of purpose and structure to our time and our purpose here in this world. It is a purpose meant to unite us in Christ. God has given us this pattern for a reason, probably for many reasons. In a very real sense, our life begins at Christmas. Our life begins at Christmas. Remember that Christmas is Christ's Mass, right? That's, that's where we get the word from, Christ's Mass. It was a worship service uh, in honor of the birth of Christ. And for the reason of emphasizing his lordship, his kingship. It, they really weren't concerned with birthday parties. It wasn't like, yay, we got a baby now. Uh, that's the reason that they even had a Christ's Mass was because they were trying to emphasize to the pagan world that Christ is king. Christ is king, and we're going to date everything from his birth. Remember, the word mass came up in the church because of the phrase that was often used at the end of service, where the priest or the, the pastor would say, Ita, Misa est, which basically means go, it is a mission. Misa, it's a mission. That's where the word mass comes from. Um, and so every worship service is a mission. It's you, you, you come and receive a mission. Okay? We must remember that the first Christians did not celebrate Christmas. There was no Christmas. <clears throat> um, Christmas is something the church established, as we have seen, almost 300 years later. And as a parent rejoices to see his or her child creatively taking responsibility and making good decisions... So God is glad and the people of God should be glad at Christmas. Okay, it's a thing that the church developed as they understood what was going on in the world. They understood their mission in the world. Um, it's a, it's a, a milestone, really. Um, recall that the early church was anticipating the return of Jesus, the Son of Man, within their lifetime. Remember that? That we should have that pretty much, pretty much fixed in our minds at this point. Um, the early church was anticipating the return of Jesus, the Son of Man, within their lifetime. Uh, Jesus had said, before this generation passes away. So much of the New Testament is focused on the imminent coming of Christ to destroy the old covenant, heaven and earth, and to establish the new covenant, heaven and earth, the gathering of the elect and the appearance of the city of God. So for the first 40 years of the church, they were just, everybody was focused on that. And all the New Testament has that in mind. There's a sense of anticipation. Something's going to happen. And I hope I'm here to see it because it's, it's coming soon. <clears throat> all of this anticipation reached its climax in the book of Revelation and its fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The first century Christians were appropriately focused on this dramatic change at the heart of the story. When it became apparent that the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age did not look like what they expected, like John the Baptist, as we saw last week, right? they had to rethink the meaning of the kingdom of God. Uh, it, this is not 
happening quite as we expected. And so just like John the Baptist had to rethink things a little, uh, so did the church. They began to think more about what it meant to continue living in this world while also living in the kingdom of God. They began to understand that, like the conquest of the sanctuary land in Joshua's day, God was delegating the work of the kingdom to his people. Okay? That's, the church began to, that began to dawn on them. The Messiah had come, but he was delegating the work of the kingdom just as he had delegated um, the conquest of the sanctuary land under Joshua. Remember, God, God could have just like killed everyone in Canaan, right? And said, you guys just go in and have a good time. Okay, but that's not what God did. He said, here it is, go get it, right? I'll help you across the river, right? Stop the river up, you guys go across, and I'll even, I'll even break down the walls of the first, you know, that big Jericho thing, okay? Just do what I say, everything will go well. But you have to do it, okay? And so this is what's happening in the first uh, and second centuries of the church they were realizing that God was delegating the work of the kingdom to his people. Thus, as we saw when we considered the history of the Feast of Christmas, it was the result of the church taking over the land and proclaiming the birth of Jesus as the fact of history from which all of our days and years would be counted. They were doing this in the name of God. Now, you don't see it in the scriptures. There's no... There's no you know, thou shalt celebrate Christmas there, right? But this is something the church did. And it's something that we should celebrate that they did. There are people in the church today who think, um, they believe some lies that they've heard. They think that Christmas is the result of the church compromising with pagans. And, you know, so we've been over that already, right? Okay, so you guys understand a little bit about where that came from. Um, it is not compromise with pagans. It's we took over, Okay. We took over and we set up a memorial. Um, in fact, <clears throat> you know, we, we date all of our, our years now. Anno Domini, right? A.D. We live in 2019, about to be 2020 A.D. That stands for Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. This is why secular textbooks now want to call it uh, the common era, common era instead of A.D. Because well, they don't want to recognize the Lordship of Christ, right? Well, don't buy that. Right? You, we should continue to say A.D., Anno Domini, or just say in the year of our Lord. But, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter what you call it. You're, what are you counting from? <laughs> you know, it's 2020 from then, from that point, okay? Take a look at Joshua chapter 4. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 4. Um, this is a, it's a helpful text, and I, I hope that this message won't be too um, stretched here. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to grasp what I'm getting at as we think about Christmas. <clears throat> um, Joshua 4, I'll just take the first seven verses here, okay? Uh, so you know, Joshua's the book about them uh, coming into the sanctuary land and taking over. Just, just before Jericho here. Um, okay, so Joshua chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each, uh, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, 
and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Okay, back to Luke. <clears throat> um, why do I point out Joshua here? Um, because I believe Christmas is like that pile of stones, that memorial. The people of God did this thing, and the people of God set up a memorial. And it's not a bad thing that the people of God did this. Um, it's a good thing. So is Christmas. Christmas, and I, like I said, I think it fits in well with the structure of the church year. So our text today is, of course, filled with Christmas meaning. As we look at the story, I want us to feel the weight of Mary's question, just as we did with John's question last week. Uh, I'm beginning to feel a series coming on for future Christmases, uh, Questioning Christmas. Um, and it, so John's question was last week, and this is Mary's question. Um, you remember John's question? You can paraphrase if you want. Are you sure about this? <laughs> Are you sure you're the one, Jesus? I mean... Things aren't shaping up like I expected, so are you sure you're the Messiah? And, uh, of course, yes, the answer is yes. Tell John what you see. Now, Mary's question, so, so John asked, um, uh, you know, his question sprung from his doubt about how the scene and the story were not shaping up the way that uh, he thought they would. So John's is a question of impatience and disappointment. Like a little boy, he wants action now. Right? Take up the sword, Lord, and, and chop these people up and let's bring the kingdom. Right? Um, Jesus said, wait, that's not quite how it's going to happen. Um, Mary's is a question of curiosity and wonder. In a sense, she asks, how can this happen? It sounds impossible. And laced with more than a, a hint of pain. Okay, so her question is, how, how can this be? Um, and hence the title of the message. So let's return to our old friend Luke and see what the Holy Spirit tells us through his pen. Remember, Luke was also the author of the book of Acts. Um, and so Luke has a lot to tell us here. So verses 26 and 27, we're in Luke chapter 1. And uh, let's start with uh, 26 and 27. In the sixth month, um, and if you just pick up the text there, you just don't know what, you know, what are you talking about? In the sixth month of what? Uh, he, he's referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, because he had just finished talking about John the Baptist. And so Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy with John the Baptist. Elizabeth is Mary's older cousin. Okay? Um, so in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Gabriel first appears in Daniel chapter 8 and 9 to explain a vision to Daniel. Okay, so Gabriel pops up there and explains a vision to Daniel. The only other appearance is to Zechariah in the temple announcing the birth of John the Baptist. 
only two appearances of Gabriel in the Bible. Uh, one is to Daniel, explaining a vision, and the other is to Zechariah. And so he now uh, shows up to Mary. <clears throat> um, the angel who, yeah, angel, maybe the angel who spoke to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. We don't know for sure, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Um, but he tells, uh, in, in Luke 1, 19, uh, he says, uh, and to Joseph, he says, he stands in the presence of God. Gabriel is an angel who stands in the presence of God. So he's a pretty big deal, right? Gabriel is a pretty big deal. Um, and he was sent to deliver these two messages. Um, well, one to, uh, to Elizabeth um, and then one to Mary. His name means great is El, Gabriel. Uh, great is God, right? El is God, so great is God. Um, so, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Um, just a quick uh, geography thing. Um, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Okay, Judea is in the south. Samaria is in the middle. Galilee. So, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Um, both Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth at the time. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, they also returned here after purification, that is Jesus' purification, at least 40 days after Jesus was born, in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. When, they, uh, when did they go down to Egypt then? When did they go down to Egypt? Uh, remember, Jesus, uh, Joseph took Jesus and Mary down to Egypt. Why? Herod was trying to kill them. Right. Uh, Herod was trying to kill Jesus, in fact. So it's just a, I just kind of want to break down a little bit of chronology for you because it, it gets a little confusing. The, really, the only Gospels you have to deal with when you're talking about the nativity of Jesus are Matthew and Luke because Mark and John have next to nothing. Um, really, John has nothing. <laughs> um, and uh, So, so it's, it, you're dealing with basically Matthew and Luke. And they have different slightly different perspectives and, and orderings of things, um, but the chronology works out pretty well. Joseph and Mary living in Nazareth. They are they're engaged, which in that time, in that place, that was a legally binding situation. You didn't just say, oh, yeah, we're, I'm in a relationship. <laughs> right? You didn't do that. Um, uh, it was a legally binding, an engagement was legally binding. Um, you could be put to death for having sexual relations um, even with the person you were engaged to. Um, but certainly outside of that, it would be a breaking of a covenant. Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem for the census. Um, uh, we know about that, the uh, Caesar Augustus thing. So they go to Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem because Joseph is from that area. He's from Bethlehem. Um, he is from the house of Judah. So they have to go there to be counted. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, day one. All right, so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The shepherds visit Jesus in Bethlehem, also on day one, the same day from the text. <clears throat> the Magi visit sometime after Jesus was born. Uh, we get that from Matthew 2, verse 1. But before both the escape to Egypt and Jesus' purification in the temple, which is, has to be at least 40 days later. It can be 40 or 50, 60 maybe, but... You're supposed to do it at least somewhere around 40 days after birth. <clears throat> and um, the Magi, of course, only show up in Matthew's Gospel. So Luke doesn't say anything about the Magi. Um, but when you 
try to put the chronology together, the Magi had to show up sometime between Jesus' birth and um, before the 40 days. So there's like a 40-day window for the Magi to show up. Um, Herod tries to kill Jesus, um, and he, he has this plan. Um, remember, the Magi show up and see Herod first, right? Um, so uh, he develops this plan. He wants them to kind of tell him what they find, but I imagine he had soldiers hard on, hard on their heels, right? Right behind the Magi come Herod's soldiers uh, looking for Jesus. Um, so Joseph takes his family to Egypt for protection, um, it's a very short stay because they have to be back in Jerusalem 40 to 60 days after Jesus is born. So there's, a, there's a, quite a bit of a of movement going on here, but they're in Bethlehem, Jesus is born, the shepherds visit, the magi visit, um, Herod, they leave, Herod's troops come in, so they get away and go to Egypt, Herod's troops come in, um, and then... Um, Within 40 days, that Herod dies, right? So it's very close. All these things are running close together. Within 40 days of that, Herod dies, and they are back in Jerusalem for Jesus' purification in Luke chapter 2, verses, verse 22. And then after the purification in Jerusalem, the whole family returns to Nazareth. Okay, you with me? You follow all that chronology? That's good. I encourage you to read it in the scriptures, though. It's pretty cool. All right, so the angel Gabriel comes down to this uh, town of Nazareth to a virgin. The text says a virgin. Where are we at? Um, <clears throat> in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Okay. Um, Matthew 1, and 23 explicitly claims the virgin birth is a fulfillment of Isaiah seven fourteen. I think uh, Josh had that reading today from Matthew 1, or somebody did. One of you had a Matthew reading. Um, reading from Matthew, and he is quoting from Isaiah 7, 14. Um, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. We're all familiar with that around Christmas time. <clears throat> um, some have pointed out two problems with this uh, idea of virgin here. The first problem is one of translation and not very significant. The Hebrew word Isaiah uses is Alma, which, is, which basically means a young woman who is not married. Okay, Alma. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, you guys remember the Greek, what's that called? The Greek translation of the, it's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint. <clears throat> the Greek translation, um, for translating Alma, which is Hebrew, into Greek, they use the word Parthenos, which is definitely, in Greek, definitely means virgin, the way we mean that word. Um, of course, all the other details in the Gospels support the idea of the virgin birth, not least Mary's question to the angel. How can this be? <clears throat> the second problem concerns the immediate context of Isaiah's prophecy. And if we'll take a look briefly here at Isaiah chapter 7, <clears throat> uh, you'll, you'll begin to understand that problem, which is a little more serious, but still not a big deal. Um, Isaiah chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 10. 
Isaiah 7. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, that is the context of Isaiah's prophecy, which Matthew quotes the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. <clears throat> the context tells us that Isaiah's prophecy had a more immediate fulfillment in the late 700s. He was talking about um, Assyria coming to defeat um, uh, the northern kingdom. Well, yeah, to defeat the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. So remember, um, after Solomon dies, the uh, Israel splits into two kingdoms, right? Judah and Israel, north and south. <clears throat> and um, so uh, our king here, uh, Ahaz, is a king of Judah. And um, Israel, the northern kingdom, has allied itself with Syria. You've got two kings uh, going, uh, and, and they're going up against Judah, right? And so um, Ahaz has been talking to the Lord here in this text, and, um, and the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign, Ahaz. Um, and uh, Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so God says, I'm going to give you a sign then. Okay? And then he does. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, so, <clears throat> so the context tells us these things. Uh, it's, it has an immediate fulfillment in you know, around the 700s. These were two kings of uh, okay, two kings Ahaz of, of Judah dreaded, and Isaiah promises that those lands will be laid waste by the Assyrians before this boy is able to distinguish good from evil. Okay, so that's what Isaiah is talking about to Ahaz is uh, there's it, there's going to be a boy, and before the boy can grow up, the two kingdoms that you dread will be defeated by the Assyrians. So this is a very strange, mystic piece just stuck in the middle of this other prophecy. It just is it's just really odd. And I think we've run into this a couple of times before where we see how the New Testament writers take Old Testament texts and do things with them that, that weren't part of the original context. This is, this is one of those cases. Um, so before this boy is able to distinguish good from evil... Uh, Assyria is going to kick the butts of the other two countries there. Isaiah's Emmanuel seems to have been merely a literary device in the immediate story, simply to say that Syria and Ephraim, the northern kingdom, would be defeated by Assyria in less time than it takes a boy to come of age when he knows good from evil. That's a, so the Lord himself will give you a sign, a virgin will conceive, he's going to grow up, but before he grows up, this is going to happen. Okay, <clears throat> There's no... Um, 
There is no literal Emmanuel spoken of anywhere else in the scriptures or in Jewish history. Not until Matthew's gospel does the name return and Matthew takes it as a reference to Jesus. And in Matthew, the emphasis is placed on virgin while Isaiah emphasizes the time it takes for the boy to grow up. Okay, so Matthew is emphasizing, hey, by the way, he said a virgin will conceive. Well, that's Jesus. That's what Matthew is doing with it. Isaiah, I'm not sure Isaiah knew what he was doing. He just kind of, he said this thing. Uh, and then it pops up later. So it's a very um, mystic text. Um, clearly, the apostles and the early church meant for us to know that Jesus was born of a virgin in exactly the same sense as we still use that word today. So let me go on. <clears throat> um, she, so the angel Gabriel appeared to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Uh, Joseph had left his native Judea and was living in Mary's native Galilee, separated by Samaria, right? So he's, he's left his homeland and he's gone to live up where she's at. Um, they were already engaged, legally binding, to be married. And the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so uh, at this point, let's go back to Luke here. And I, wanna, I want you to watch, it's almost like a movie, okay? Because there is this way out view and then it descends and the spotlight is put on Mary. So read, read the text like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God, okay, from God, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph out of the house of David, so it's to a family, and her name was Mary. You see that? Focus in on Mary. Mary is in the spotlight here. God, Gabriel, Galilee, Nazareth, a family, Mary. 28 and 29, verses 28 and 29. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. No one else in scripture gets this, uh, this kind of greeting. David is called a man after God's own heart. And John is called by himself, when he writes his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay? Um, so you got David, a man after God's own, own heart, and John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But that's it. O favored one is utterly unique. Mary is the only one who gets this, this epithet. O favored one. Uh, she was greatly troubled at the saying... Luke tells us she was greatly troubled at the same. Well, first, Gabriel is an angel, okay? So fear is part of the package. Um, Second, to be singled out by God has always been a little scary. Most of us would rather be left alone, seeing that God usually does some amazing stuff, but difficult, um, and difficult things. Uh, So he does amazing things, but difficult things with people that he singles out. I believe there is a little bit of Mary in each one of us. I mean this in two ways. First, I believe we who are in Christ are favored ones. Okay, So being in Christ makes us favored ones in the sense that God means to be born in us. Okay, you following? God means to be born in us. Uh, that, is, um, that is something that God... That's a... That's a goal that God has set for his people, uh, for Christ to be formed in us. Um, 
And that means he means to live in us. And for, for Christ to live in us means both suffering and glory. Okay? So for Christ to live in us, that means suffering and glory. Second, I believe we too are troubled by this news, uncertain what it will mean for us. Oh no, what sort of painful thing do you want me to do? Uh, your moment in the spotlight, so to speak. Uh, so Mary was troubled by what sort of greeting. This Greetings, O favored one. To be favored, if you're favored by God and by an angel, um, something else is coming, right? What, what, why, why have I been singled out? What, what's the point here? So, some, what's next? <clears throat> um, Gabriel's message. Here is what's next. Verses 30 through 33. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So let me, let me stop there for a second and say, don't be afraid, child of God. Whatever suffering you have to deal with is entirely within God's favor towards you. Whatever suffering you have to deal with is entirely within God's favor towards you. This is a good thing. You have cancer, you lost your job, you don't know what's next. Do not be afraid, child of God. <clears throat> you have found favor with God. Consider the calamity and trouble this brought on Mary. What kind of good news is this? Being pregnant before marriage was a serious offense. Who would believe her story? Joseph had trouble with it at first. I, we don't really, we're not told about the background, right? Mary's, I don't know if she told him, okay, I'm pregnant. Uh, or this thing happened. But he was, I guess he didn't believe her because she probably said, well, the angel said. And he's like, eh. <laughs> I don't know, Mary. I think we better just call this off. I don't know what you did, but it <laughs> doesn't look good. And then the angel had to tell Joseph, hey, wait a minute. This is something else here. <clears throat> um, so a lot of stress there for Mary. Um, what if I make a mistake? Right? What, like, I mean, she probably didn't think about this then, but it, you had that thing now. What if I ate the wrong thing? Do I eat the wrong food? If I, can I do this? Can I do that? Um, you know, and then that, that having the child is just part of it. Then about raising. How can I raise? How can I be a mother to the Son of God? Um, how can I raise the Messiah? Oh, no pressure. No pressure. You can raise the Messiah. <clears throat> um, add to this, she would be an enemy of the king because um, if Jesus is the king, which the Messiah is supposed to be, Herod would not be happy about this. Mary probably understood this. Um, then there's the thing about being homeless. <laughs> and, of course, later, uh, the crucifixion when she has to watch Jesus be crucified. Okay, so Mary dealt with a lot of the w greetings, oh favored one. Right? I got something for you to do. <clears throat> you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. At this point, she may have thought this was to happen after she and Joseph were married. Don't know, but I mean, he hasn't finished yet, but he says, You're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, some folks make controversy over this. These are the, um, there, there are some folks, uh, especially in the Hebrew Roots Movement or the Messianic um, Movement, 
who uh, are a little, a little troubled, some more troubled than others, about this thing about Jesus rather than uh, Yeshua or Yeshua. Um, and so I did a little bit of research. Um, so let me just tell you how this works here. Uh, Yehoshua and Yeshua, both Hebrew words. Um, <clears throat> Yeshua was a common alternative spelling for Yehoshua. Okay, especially by the 400s B.C. It first appears in some texts in the 400s B.C. It's kind of like the difference between J-O-H-N and J-O-N. Okay? They both are the same, you know, when you say John, right? Uh, we, you know, we mean it's the same person, but sometimes the spelling was a little different. So you got Jehoshua and you got Yeshua. Um, Jehoshua is the older form, um, and it's... Uh, it gets translated as Joshua, usually. Um, so the two Hebrew spellings are sometimes used of the same person, which is usually translated into English, English as Joshua. But there are a few other Jesus, Jesuses in Hebrew texts um, translated into Greek. So when you get a Hebrew text, sometimes you'll see Yeshua not referring to our Jesus, the one we're looking at in the Gospels, but to someone else whose name might be Joshua, or Jesus. You know, how, how do you translate it? It's kind of hard to say, but you've got these two different spellings. Jesus, Jesus is, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name, and its English spelling is Jesus. Thus, the names Joshua and Jesus are essentially the same. Uh, both are English pronunciations of the Hebrew and Greek names for our Lord, Joshua and Jesus, but I think that's helpful because Joshua and Jesus are similar types. Joshua is a type of Jesus in the Bible. Um, so, good, good that they're compared. So, I just wanted to say that you know, he's going to be called Jesus. Um, Yeshua or Yehoshua, however you want to say it. It really doesn't matter. <clears throat> um, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This was good news, but it wasn't quite as clear as it seems to us. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Highest One clearly means a Son of God. Uh, both men and angels are referred to in Scripture as sons of God. Okay, So um, it's not simply like when we think Son of God, we automatically think of Jesus. Um, but uh, both men and angels are referred to in Scripture as sons of God. It was a phrase demonstrating faithfulness to God. And to his commands. Jesus himself says that peacemakers shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5 9. Peacemakers shall be called sons of God. Paul says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans 8 14. The pagans also had sons of God in their own religions. Um, the Greek Dionysus, um, the Persian Mithras the Egyptian Horus and Osiris, and uh, the Celtic or Germanic Balder. Uh, these are all sons of God, and uh, many of them go through some of the same kinds of things that Jesus goes through. In fact, uh, all of those sons of God I mentioned, and there are many more in pagan mythology, but these sons of God um, in pagan mythology are also um, men who died and were brought back to life. They were resurrected, so... Dionysus, Mithras, Horus, Osiris, and Balder. Um, so why are they there? Is Jesus just another one of these? 
Um, this is an accusation that's leveled against the church. Um, Jesus is just another one of these um, dying gods that is raised from the dead. Dionysus, Mithras, Horus, Osiris, and Balder. Um, this topic has been tackled by other people, and I'm not, I don't have time to go into all of it, but C.S. Lewis wrote a really good essay on this called Myth Became Fact, um, and it's a response to this very accusation, and he, he simply points out that God has communicated to the pagans. Um, he has not left them without testimony, um, and he says that Jesus is the myth that became a fact. Okay, so... Yes, there were all of, they had thought through these things. There were these kinds of stories in pagan cultures. Um, and Jesus is simply the myth that became a fact. Um, whereas Dionysus, Mithras, Horus, Osiris, and Balder were all simply um, imaginations, <laughs> the imaginations of pagan cultures, but they were not empty and vain imaginations. Uh, they were connected to things that God was doing with those pagan nations. Um, and Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of that. So <clears throat> he is the son of the Most High. But Gabriel gets more specific uh, when he talks to Mary. He says, And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay, so Joseph is of the tribe of Judah. He's descended from David. In all of our readings today, we've heard a lot of this, um, and, and even in our songs, uh, the stem of Jesse, uh, or the, you know, the root of, uh, of David. Um, so it, this is all about tracing Jesus back to David, right? Uh, Jesse was David's father. Uh, so back to David as the king of Israel, the, the great king of Israel. Um, okay, so he's going to give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Um, so the house of Jacob is Israel, and it is supposed to exist forever so that Mary's son can reign over it. There will be no end to it. Where is the throne of David? Where is the throne of David? Oh, it's in Jerusalem. Um, is it in the old earthly Jerusalem or in the new Jerusalem? Well, it was, the throne of David was in the old Jerusalem. But what does it mean that Jesus, the Son of God, will reign over the kingdom of David um, forever? Well, it, it, there's something going on here with this whole Jerusalem thing, the kingdom of God, right? Um, so, the throne of David that is spoken of here is not the throne that is in the old earthly Jerusalem. It is in the heavenly Jerusalem, as Paul talks about in Galatians 4, and uh, John describes in Revelation, the new Jerusalem. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Where is that kingdom? Where is that kingdom? It's here. This world. Jesus uh, remember uh, in John's revelation, behold, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Um, so uh, Jesus rules over that. His, his throne is there. Does Jesus reign over Israel today? Yes, certainly. The church is Israel and Jesus is our king. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom. Uh, Matthew 12, 28, he says, but 
if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's talking to the Pharisees who are complaining about him casting out demons. And he says, well, who do you ca- how do you cast out demons? And he's, you know, uh, do you, what spirit do you use? What power, where's your power to cast out demons? But he says, but if I cast out uh, demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. Luke 17, 20 and 21 um, says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. This is the kingdom of God in which we now live and move and have our being. Jesus, the Son of God, is now reigning as king over it. That is the water in which we live. That is the stage and the context for our work and play. When we wake up, when we boot up, this is the programming that should load into our brains and inform us of our role, the kingdom of God. Now Mary's question, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Clearly Mary understands the problem. This is also the center of a chiasm. I haven't used the word chiasm for a long time. It feels good. Chiasm. You guys remember what a chiasm is? Literary structure? Um, So it goes like this. Angel comes to Mary. Angel announces a miracle. Angel proclaims the kingdom, uh, the king in the kingdom. How will this be? That's the middle. Angel proclaims the king. Angel announces another miracle. Angel leaves Mary. Okay, so if you look through that whole... The whole text reading today, you've got a chiasm. At the very center is, how will this be? That's the center of the chiasm. Um, And so I think there's a point. We're supposed to ask that question. How will this be? Uh, Mary is a virgin. Luke wants us to know that Mary is a parthenos, not just an alma. Right? She's the Parthenos, the real deal. Now, Mary is not so sure that this wonderful new baby is going to wait until she is safely married. So she checks to make sure Gabriel knows how these things work. He does. He knows how these things work. Gabriel's answer is this. So, and his answer shows that he, he knows what, what she's getting at. <clears throat> He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Uh, The Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, will overshadow you. It doesn't get any more mysterious than that. The, The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Um... So I have here in my notes, just, this is, I'm supposed to know what to do with this. Genetics and immaculate conception. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> um, so you probably have heard of the doctrine of immaculate conception that the Catholic Church believes in and has believed for a long time. Um, 
Do you, do you have any understanding about where that comes from, why, why it's there? They weren't trying to make trouble for anyone, right? They weren't trying to, oh, let's see how evil we can be. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no, um, this was the problem. Um, Jesus has to be sinless. Um, God provided the seed, but the seed was to be planted in a corrupt field. And they understood enough about farming to know that there's more to the crop than just the seed, right? So they didn't understand chromosomes and all this stuff and how that all works together, but they did understand you plant a good seed in a bad field and you're going to get a bad crop or at least a less than perfect crop. Um, So Mary had to somehow be made a perfect field. Mary had to be made um, without sin in order for Jesus to be without sin. Okay? You see where that was going? How they they thought through that kind of thing. Um, So it's not quite accurate to speak of Jesus. Okay, so I don't want to elaborate on it. I just want you to understand where that comes from. Um, You know, Jesus was born of God and Mary, and um, Jesus was without sin. And so, you know, we're all born with sin. There's sin in our flesh. There's sin in human, in human nature. So God had to somehow deal with that. And um, one of the ways they decided they weren't going to deal with that is uh, by saying that somehow God made Mary without sin prior to that, uh, prior to that taking place. Um, so, no more time to elaborate on that, but... Um, Suffice it to say, we don't really believe that ourselves, but it's a complicated issue. So um, now you know a little bit more about where it comes from. Um, <clears throat> it's not quite accurate to speak of Jesus or the Son of God before this time. That is, Jesus and the Son of God um, were not things, uh, especially Jesus. There just was no Jesus before this, right? There's no Jesus before this. But the Word of God is eternally part of the Trinity, Right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we say. Um, that's kind of shorthand because he wasn't the Son necessarily until he was, until this point, right? Um, because th- and, and Luke tells us this. Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, another translation says, for this reason, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. The child to be born is the Son of God. So it's a little, I mean, we know what we're talking about when we say Jesus was there at the beginning of creation, right? But it wasn't Jesus, Jesus, you know, it was the Word of God. The Word of God was there. This is the beginning of Jesus, right? The beginning of the the person. So um, anyway, that that gets a little too complicated. But I just wanted to say it's not exactly accurate to speak of Jesus or the Son of God before this time. This is a big deal. Right? He is the Son of God, and you're going to call his name Jesus. Um, Okay. Uh, Behold, your relative Elizabeth uh, in her old age has conceived a son, and this is now the sixth month with her who was called barren. And it was said that uh, she couldn't have children, but now she's six months pregnant. Just to let you know how possible this is, Mary, we can can do this. Okay? And Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. I want to ask, should God be limited to what usually happens? 
course not. God should not be limited to what usually happens. And that should make us think, are the laws of nature prescriptive or descriptive? That is, laws of nature, do the things we call laws of nature, do they tell us how things have to be or they do, do they describe the way things usually are? Well, if you think about it, it's the latter, really. But some people have so much confidence in the laws of nature that they think they must be prescriptive, that everything has to always happen according to these, and it's not possible for something to happen beyond these. So uh, they would reject the virgin birth, right? Um, and Mary was a little troubled by it too. Uh, how can this be? I'm not sure. Things don't usually happen this way, God. Um, okay, and in verse 38, this is the end of it, the end of the text for today, Mary's heart. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Again, we must ask, was this good news for Mary? She was scared. She had no idea how it was all going to work out. How could she parent a child like this? What would she tell her family? Who would believe her? But Mary's response sets an example for us. Whatever trial we must face, whatever difficulty or challenge May our response be, I am your servant, Lord. Do to me according to your will. For the word that saves the world. Very good. Stand up. Let's pray. Maybe I'm supposed to pray first. I don't know. I might have gotten them out of order. I did, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Okay, anyway, we're going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for your grace that washes over our, my multitude of sins uh, and for our, uh, that you wash over all of our sins. Uh, we thank you for the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Jesus, uh, the wonder of uh, what you have done. We pray, Father, that we would have um, the heart that Mary has um, and, and say, uh, let it be unto us uh, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, I guess now I would say, for the word that saves the world. Uh, there you go. Bless, okay, I've got to read my own liturgy. Blessed be the living and active word of God.